The sledgehammers and hatchets bash the barrels as booze flows out. People cheer and celebrate as a cop watches on. More and more alcohol dumps into the street and into the sewers as the beginning of the 18th Amendment takes hold. This is the story of the prohibition in the United States. Hello and welcome back to the Cleocast, episode 17, But Why Prohibition? Uh, I'm RC. And I'm Matt. And we're going to be talking about the origins of the U.S. Prohibition at this time. We're not necessarily going to go into all the gang and uh, crime and all that kind of stuff that maybe gets highlighted a lot more, but we're going to really kind of deep dive into why the Prohibition occurred, like the cultural, societal, uh, all those different factors that go into it. And with that, we're just going to get right started. So the United States was founded as kind of a refuge of religious sects, kind of Quakers, different Protestants as they escaped persecution from England and all that. That's kind of a generalization, but that's what we're going to have to do this episode if we want to get through this topic at any reasonable pace. So with this kind of religious Protestant-based founding, uh, there was a lot of different sects of protestantism that existed within the country you know unlike catholicism it's not one monolithic religion there's a bunch of different groups with a bunch of different beliefs some of these religious groups were very anti-liquor anti-alcohol right not necessarily any one but there, there were a few so around the 1800s going up until like the 1830s they started to kind of rally against liquor because americans were drinking like an ungodly amount of it. Per capita, it's estimated that Americans were drinking annually around five gallons of hard liquor. That's a lot. So I can kind of see where they're coming from. So it started as an individualist movement, right? They were trying to just get you as an individual to abstain from alcohol. They didn't want to ban it yet, though some groups might have, but just in general, it was more of a just trying to get the individual to better themselves by abstaining from alcohol consumption. Now, these people were usually associated with the Methodist Church in the United States, and they were referred to as teetotalers. If you ever do any research into the American Civil War, you might hear of many of officers referred to as teetotalers. Uh, this is you know, men or uh, entire movement of people who were abstaining from alcohol completely. And even went uh, as far as some religious sects like the Mormons who didn't like caffeine or, uh, you know, different sects such as, you know, the Mennonites and Amish that rejected, you know, industrializing society as it moved forward altogether. So new religious sects in the United States developing weird uh, understandings and things that you're going to stop doing to better your life for God and yourself wasn't really, you know, a novel thing straight to liquor but liquor was a massive focus for a good chunk of them and that's something that really some people who enjoy drinking or you know new immigrants to the united states who brought a drinking culture with them uh didn't really like because you know this is a land of individualism and freedom why are you telling me exactly what i can and can't do especially if my life involves you know i want to drink and that's that's allowed in the United States at the time in the uh, late 1800s. But 
a movement was developing to really push men into cutting drinking because the average American male was consuming, as R.C. said earlier, five gallons of alcohol a year. If that was just alcohol, it was also on average to consume 25 gallons of beer in a year for per capita across the United States. So that's an ungodly amount of alcohol consumed, and it obviously cost money. Now, although it was relatively cheap and plethora, the alcohol was a, a major expense for most families, especially as they were paid uh, very low wages in factory jobs or labor jobs all across the country. So if you're a family of wife and wife, children, you know, and a man who brings in the money and you're paid very little and you spend a good chunk of that on alcohol, you know, every dime you spend on booze is a dime that doesn't go back to your family at all. Now, around the turn of the century, the 1800s, like 1850s, 1860s, 1870s, there was kind of a shift in the whole anti-liquor movement from a individualist approach to a more organized approach. And there are a few main factors for that. Uh, one being a lot of the energy in the country was spent, at least on this kind of abolitionist activist type of thing was spent on abolitionism. I mean, slavery was still a prominent issue, so a lot of the country's resources to opposing an idea were spent on that, rightfully so. So then with the Civil War and slavery ending in the middle 1800s, there's a lot more activism that can be focused elsewhere. And alongside that, there's industrialization growing, which is getting more people out of farms and into factories. And with that, you have less time working in the field, you know, manual labor, and more time to spend at saloons. So you get a lot of this kind of movement towards the cities and a lot more paychecks being spent on saloons. So in 1874, the Women's Christian Temperance Union forms, and they were kind of one of the first major anti-liquor prohibitionist movement organizations. They were ostensibly a Christian organization and mostly founded by women because a lot of women were affected by, say, their husbands drinking, their husbands coming home drunk or wasting the paycheck away. And that's a trend you're going to see in a lot of this movement is it's mostly being pushed by women because they're the main victims of any form of drunkenness by the men in their homes. Now, there are a few angles that uh, really justify prohibition in the minds of people who are extremely pro-prohibition. With the end of slavery and the industrialization movement across the United States, Uh, There is a great migration of now free African-Americans who are looking for stable jobs that doesn't involve working for their old slave master. So they start flowing back up into Union cities to uh, work at these factories, and they also uh, are getting drunk. And if you're a fine, proper white Christian woman and you know you're used to ah there's drunk irish there's drunk germans but now there's drunk free blacks in our cities ruining our streets that's we can't stand for that this has to go completely 
uh, were, you know, just another uh, very dark shadow that hangs over the American history in general is the level of racism that is maintained throughout it and does, you know, linger to this day. So the second major angle that existed for, you know, enforcing a prohibition of alcohol is it's a utopian idea. If we can ban alcohol, everyone can spend their money on more profitable, important ideas, and we can, you know, have clean cities, no drunk people laying in the streets, disorderly mobs breaking things, or a drunk man lying in the street. This is gross, it's bad, it makes us look bad, and if we ban alcohol, well, it'll be illegal, so no one will do it. Now, if you care about the poor, you understand that they do spend a lot of their money on booze. You know, their life sucks, and people look for an escape, and they've always have looked for an escape from bad life situations. And for a good chunk of the industrialized American population, that was alcohol. But if you are a leading citizen looking to enforce a prohibition of alcohol and you care, I'm going to doing air quotes on the whole care, about these poor people, you can go ahead and give them part of their paycheck back by banning alcohol so now they can't buy it anymore. So now they have to spend their money on improving their lives and being better Christians. Now, there is also the factor of immigration. There is large populations of European immigrants flowing into the United States, about 20 million in the 1880s, inflating the U.S. population drastically, and all of them, especially Eastern European or German or Irish immigrants, bring different drinking cultures. And, you know, if you are a uh, Protestant ethnically Anglo-Saxon white person in the United States, you aren't really used to those drinking cultures, and they bring that with them, and you develop a xenophobia where, like, hey, I've been here for years. I am a nativist of the United States. I don't like these, you know, Czechs or Russians or Poles or Irish or Germans bringing their horrible, loud drinking and carousing all into our cities. So, you know, there's a bit of xenophobia there. And finally... A justified reason for prohibition is the excessive rate of battery for wives and children all across the nation, where uh, drunk men would get drunk in the saloons and take out anger and frustration or just, you know, pure sadistic pleasure on their wives or children and beat them while drunk. And people believe that alcohol is a source of that, and sometimes it is a source for, you know, domestic violence. And that was a major issue across the United States. So while the earlier stages of this organized anti-liquor prohibitionist movement in the late 1800s is more women than men, that's mostly just because women were more affected by drunkenness. So the Women's Christian Temperance Movement founded and was majority just because women were being affected in their own homes. But the Anti-Saloon League, which was founded in 1893, would be a much larger group, and it was much more bisexual. It had a lot of men in leadership roles, and it it's what wrapped a lot more men into the movement because it wasn't 
the women's Christian temperance movement. It was just the more generalist anti saloon league. And they actually got a lot of support from a few maybe surprising places. A lot of industrialists and capitalists such as Henry Ford or John D. Rockefeller were major supporters of the movement because the view was drunken workers are not as useful as sober workers. So if we ban alcohol, work will become more productive. Now, whether or not you believe this is true, it certainly is helpful to be more sober when operating heavy industrial machinery. So they may have had some point, but a wholesale ban is debatable. Now, the prohibition movement is somewhat unique to the United States in terms of wholesale ban, but liquor reductions and laws like prohibition were not unique to the United States. Countries such as Sweden in 1905 established a government monopoly on the sale of liquor, or Russia in 1914 banned the production and manufacture of vodka as a war measure, because rationing. Norway uh, banned the sale of hard spirits, but still allowed beer and wine. Australia and New Zealand in 1917 adopted laws about closing of pubs early. But other than Iceland and Finland, no other country than the United States adopted laws so harsh as prohibition, just outright banning the sale and manufacture and import. That's the uniquely American experience. Now, rolling back the clock to 1905. So Anti-Saloon League has been around for about a decade, and there's a commission formed. It's the Committee of the Fifty on Investigation of the Liquor Problem, which was a commission staffed by social scientists, you know, businessmen, whatnot, policymakers. Now, they conducted a report on counties that banned alcohol because they'd been doing it on like a state-by-state, county-by-county basis, banning alcohol, whatnot, just however the population felt. There wasn't a nationwide ban yet, though. So this report found that anti-liquor laws reduced consumption in areas with strong support for prohibition, but failed to stamp out alcohol traffic completely, i.e. in counties that supported prohibition, obviously, as you would assume, consumption of alcohol was reduced greatly when prohibition was passed, but it failed to completely wipe out all alcohol traffic. Now, it also found that in areas with less support for prohibition, legislation banning alcohol or reducing alcohol tended to do the opposite effect, and it fostered a defiance of the law and a, quote, generation of habitual lawbreakers schooled in evasion and shamelessness, end quote. Now, if that's not foreshadowing, I don't know what is. A 1905 report, 15 years before Prohibition, found effectively exactly what the results of Prohibition would be. But, of course, people married to their position refused to listen and went ahead full steam ahead because to give up the policy now would be to admit defeat. And it hadn't been enacted on a nationwide scale yet, right? A county-by-county, state-by-state, it's very easy to supersede laws and simply move, go to a different county and get alcohol or whatnot. So they figured, hey, this report may say this, but we haven't tried it on a nationwide scale yet. Maybe the results will be different. 
Now, there were movements that went hand-in-hand in in the early 1900s. Along with the push to ban alcohol, there was also the push to give women the right to vote. Women's suffrage was a massive topic amongst suffragettes and people who also were pro-banning alcohol. And there was the National American Women's Suffrage Association. Now, they didn't support the 18th Amendment because they didn't want to cut out women that were against, you know, the banning of alcohol. But there were a lot of suffragettes that were pro-prohibition, and the overlap between the two organizations were drastic. And also, the liquor industry had pretty strong ties to the anti women's suffrage movement because they believed that if women had the right to vote, the banning of alcohol would follow soon afterwards. Although that would not be true in history where the banning of alcohol would come first in the United States, then women would get the right to vote. You know, the common phrase, America sobered up and gave women the right to vote. But still, it was a drastic danger in the eyes of liquor manufacturers that if women had the ability to vote, they would destroy their industry completely. Now, in 1914, Richmond Hobson wrote the Hobson Resolution in Congress in which was going to be basically a verbatim copy of what would become the 18th Amendment. Now, this got a majority of votes in the House, but it did not get the two-thirds majority in order to go onward and be a law. But it's getting real close. There's pretty good support in Congress for a law like this. So the writing was on the wall for most liquor producers or heavy drinkers. Prohibition would eventually come. And what would be the real galvanizing moment for prohibitionists? The First World War. It reduced liquor companies' ability to produce alcohol when we joined in 1917. So by 1914, obviously, what we just mentioned, the Hobson Resolution passed in the House but failed. But the world, First World War started as well. Now, the U.S. didn't join for some years, but... There was growing anti-German sentiment in 1915 after the sinking of the Lusitania. Some Americans died and beer became quite unpopular in the U.S. because it was seen as kind of a German thing. And Germans were largely fresh immigrants at that point in time. Now, in the three years after 1914, uh, 14 additional states adopted prohibition laws which almost completely doubled the amount of states that had prohibition laws on the books. And by 1917, the year the U.S. joined the war, the number of states were up to 26 out of only 48. Now, with the U.S. joining the war, the Level Food and Fuel Control Act was passed in 1917. This was an act designed to reduce the production of alcohol to save food. Effectively, it banned the production of alcohol based on foodstuffs, It took liquor and redistilled it into wartime useful materials, such as some fuels or whatnot. And overall, it was a big victory for the prohibitionists. It didn't ban alcohol, but it was able to be kind of, it's a wartime measure, you know? It's a pro-war, anti-German movement. In fact, the slogan that pushed it was, Shall the many have food or the few have drink? Now, this act 
passed overwhelmingly 365 to 5 in the House, and it passed in the Senate 66 to 7. So in the few years since the Hobson resolution narrowly passed in the House, now the Lever Food and Fuel Control Act passed overwhelmingly. I'm sure you can kind of see where this is going now. Now, just as kind of a test of the waters, in December of 1917, the 18th Amendment was submitted. This was much like the Hobson Amendment, just a wholesale ban on the production, consumption, and sale, and import of liquor and inebriating beverages over 0.05% in the United States. Somewhat surprising to even the prohibitionists, states began ratifying it. In January of 1918, Mississippi was the first one with 122 votes in favor and only eight opposed, with Virginia, Kentucky, South Carolina, and North Dakota following closely behind. By September of 1918, Congress was going to just have a full wartime prohibition act just to completely ration out all the alcohol production in the United States, just for the war, though. And then by January of 1919, Nebraska was the 36th state to ratify the 18th Amendment and the last one required for it to be ratified. In total, 46 of 48 would ratify, but they only needed a two-thirds majority to pass. The 18th Amendment had passed through the ratification process faster than any other amendment in United States history. Now, although the 18th Amendment has just passed... There is no method of enforcement. There is no clarified outline of exactly what is banned and what is not. It's just an amendment banning alcohol. So Congress in 1918 start drafting a plan. Minnesota Congressman Andrew Volstead draft up 67 separate sections to create an entire code that would be called the Volstead Act. As it was introduced in 1919, the Volstead Act outlined exactly what laws the 18th Amendment would outline, causing a strict 0.05% alcohol content, and then anything above that is illegal. The bill had massive reach, giving an outline of exactly how to enforce prohibition, what each alcohol is banned, the caveat allowing alcohol to be served as medicine in cases with a prescription from a doctor, but other than that, is completely banned, how to enforce it, and what punishments come with violating the 18th Amendment. The Volstead Act quickly passed and was enacted in 1920, basically drawing the day of early January 1920 as the time where America had an enforcement measure to ban alcohol all across the country, beginning the 13 years of Prohibition. Now, this began the utopian years of America where we really climbed up to a great height. You know, the banning of alcohol made us a much better society. And I am kidding. It led to years of lawlessness. The Great Depression happened as well. It wasn't necessarily caused by the banning of alcohol, but we can't necessarily rule it out either, now can we? Now, the prohibitionists had framed saloons as these dens of depravity and drunkenness where people go and ruin their lives, but that's not necessarily the truth. You see, 
you're you're getting the message of these as depravity from a lot of kind of fundamentalist Christians who don't necessarily have the brightest view of alcohol in general. The saloons during this time were largely just community gathering centers. Now, it was mostly men gathering at these places because most saloons didn't allow women, but effectively it was a place for people to talk after work or on their lunch breaks or whatnot, you know, pass ideas along, maybe talk about work, maybe complain about pay. Just it was outlets for social interaction. Effectively community centers, but indoors, so that it's out of the public purview. Now, this also was a hotbed for political discussion and political development. It's a lot easier to campaign going to a saloon where most of the men in the city are going to be versus going where else. And this was true for both Democrats and Republicans. It was not a single party issue. It was both parties. Now, with the banning of alcohol, a lot of saloons, the majority of saloons would shut down, obviously, with the banning of alcohol. Their business is gone. But some would be able to rebrand into restaurants or athletic centers. In a whole, the prohibition passing killed the saloon industry. Because bars are not the same. They're just not. I mean, saloons had the flappy doors, you know, they, they were very much a old America idea, you know, the Wild West, whatever, that was dead by the 1930s. Now, prohibition led to, as one man put it, more crime, but less disorder, you know, there were less drunk people walking around on the streets because it was illegal to be drunk walking around the streets, but in general, there was more crime, as I'm sure, you know, the mafia, Al Capone, all that would lead you to believe. Now, that didn't mean there were less drunk people. Just the drunk people had to be hiding. So they were in alleys or in buildings or in isolated areas. Now, these prohibitionists that wanted to pass this law were against things that destroyed families and they believed alcohol did destroy families and did lead to crime and did lead to horrible things that really they could just turn to God and soberness and be better. But by passing this, they created organized crime to be a something more than just street gangs and in national, a national problem. And we aren't going to get into that, but I want to focus a bit more on the issue of the average working man. So now he has to pay a mobster way more money or a bootlegger way more money to get his booze. And life conditions didn't change. You still work a miserable factory job. You still live in a slum. You still want to escape. But... You can no longer have cheap booze. So the money that would have gone to taking care of your family with a little bit spending money on the side to get yourself some booze, well, now most of it's going to getting you booze. And the situation of, you know, that dime could help take care of your family, now most of the paycheck is gone. So that's an even worse situation. So really they didn't achieve exactly what they want to achieve. And you can't really do anything about it because that void left by the political organization that came from the social idea of a saloon was filled by gangsters that now are developing their first political machines that would dominate this part of American history and their control and grip over American politics. This is 
going horribly in the ideas of an average American. And if you wanted to get your booze fix, you had to make it yourself or get it from a bootlegger. And you can either go blind, you can kill yourself, and you can drink poison because there was a situation if you bought an at-home booze-making kit, there was poison in those by people who wanted to stop illegal alcohol production. This is honestly killing thousands of Americans and it's not going well. But it didn't matter because if you could afford to pay the money to get booze, you can just get it illegally or you can get it from a rum runner running booze from Europe across the ocean or from the Caribbean over and honestly a, a political dynasty was established because of it because Jack Kennedy the famous father of John F. Kennedy was one of these men that smuggled in alcohol, which made him very, very wealthy. So the dynamic of prohibition wasn't some utopia, but really a successful experiment in developing an organized crime system. The resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan and also the death of thousands of Americans due to poorly produced low standard alcohol. Now the prohibitionist period came to an end in 1933 when FDR signed as part of his newly elected New Deal programs the 21st Amendment into law effectively repealing the mistake that was the 18th Amendment and bringing to an end that chapter of American history. Now, the Great Depression was still going on, but at the very least, people could abate their depression through alcohol, which is always a healthy means of treatment. Now, that didn't mean that the effects of the prohibition were over with the amendment. See, narcotics law really started to become a thing in 1914, and it was helped on by the prohibitionist movement. And while alcohol was repealed, it was seen as a deadly narcotic, and that's where you kind of get the laws banning other types of drugs. And we're not necessarily going to get too into the weeds on this, but that's where you get the war on drugs in the 1960s, which has been not as effective as people would like to believe it has been. In fact, you can see a lot of the same effects and lessons we learned from prohibition being repeated on a larger scale in terms of some drug bannings where all it leads is just the criminality, and because people are able to sell the illicit substance for more money, you have people who sell, who would sell illegally becoming really rich off the backs of working-class people. And, and you can see the impacts of the, you know, what you know of a 1930s Italian gangster with his Tommy gun is very much the same as a Mexican cartel just moving different product. And this is a systemic problem that really lingers from the banning of alcohol is, you know, now the idea of banning something is in the mind and banning something that's bad for society instead of creating a more healthy way of regulating it. An outright ban creates these kind of situations. This also killed American drinking culture. If you are a European listener or any other person from a country that never had this, you see Americans as, you know, a country that has a very weird relationship with alcohol even to the current day. And this is a lingering effect from a law that was repealed 80 years ago, 90 years ago even. You know, it's just this continues to be a massive impact onto American society. 
But the one thing that did come out of this is we learned that banning alcohol is a dumb idea, and we also learned a lesson on passing frivolous constitutional amendments because it was a massive pain to repeal the 18th Amendment with the 21st Amendment, and that is why we now have these massive bills that are passed through Congress. Instead of passing a amendment, because you know you can easily get rid of a bill than compared to an amendment. So you pass the bill instead, creating a completely different culture when it comes to passing laws in the United States. In some nation, understanding why the prohibition happened is as fundamental to understanding why America is the way it is. It leaches into so many different facets of American life, from criminality to lawmaking to social interactions to just simple drinking culture. That's why we think it's important on this podcast to kind of focus on the less glamorous ideas like, you know, Al Capone and the gangsters and whatnot, you know, bootlegging, NASCAR, and to just kind of focus on political social ramifications that don't necessarily get highlighted as much. Anyways, thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, that's going to be it for this episode. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Clue History, as usual. Uh, we also have that new email, uh, cleohistorypodcast at gmail.com. I promise we're working on a website uh, with all our hearts. We, every day we wake up, we work on the website. Um, it's a work in progress, though. Uh, also, go ahead and check out our source book for this episode. It's The War on Alcohol by Lisa McGurr. It's a very good book. Uh, go ahead and pick it up. And, yeah, thanks for listening. I've been RC. And I'm Matt. And we'll see you next week.